In the week leading up to Jesus' death, we experience Jesus in several different moments. We, at the beginning of the week, we see Jesus, he's riding in on a donkey, riding into the crowds, and there is fanfare because Jesus is the long-awaited king, and with it there is a set of expectations and hope about the kind of person that Jesus would be. But then when they realize that he would not meet their expectations, they began planning for what happens on Friday. On Monday, Jesus goes to the temple because he's angry with the religious leaders. Because they have turned what, he, what the scriptures call a house of prayer, they have turned it into a house of robbers. And so Jesus, in anger, removes the barriers that have gotten in the way of people experiencing the presence of God. By Wednesday, Judas is making a deal to betray Jesus. On Thursday... Despite what is already coming, Jesus chooses to wash his disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas, his betrayer. Today, on Friday, we are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus. And all throughout the Gospels, what we find are some incredibly powerful words that Jesus himself shares as he, as he recalls scriptures he has learned and memorized throughout his life. In Luke chapter 23, verse 32, it says this, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is really the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're really the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, there's a sense in the context surrounding these words that Jesus says when he says, Father, forgive them. There's a sense that Jesus is a king. There's a sense in it, though, that even while he's described as king, the reason he's called king is meant to make a mockery of him. Yet at the same time, in the midst of the mocking and jeering, the statement is actually true. This really is the king of the Jews. And even though Jesus comes in as a king and, they, and very quickly they realize he's not the king they wanted, Jesus is king. Now depending on how much you realize about how crucifixion works, in the Roman world it was a torturous, painful death. The only reason we have the word excruciating is because crucifixion exists. It's a death by suffocation. And when Jesus hung on the cross, it was with the weight of his body pulling down on his arms that would have made it nearly impossible to breathe, yet alone speak. Yet even in the midst of the difficulty, the gospel writers record for us words that Jesus manages to get out in the midst of his suffering. Eventually, eventually the loss of blood would lead to his heart and his lungs failing. The open wounds on his back, in order for Jesus to take a breath, he would have to push up on his feet and his open wounds on his back would have to scrape on the wood of the cross. All that just in order to say words like, Father, forgive them. 
It was a process to designed to be slow and painful and cruel. And somehow in the midst of all that pain, Jesus makes a statement like, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I can't imagine the pain that he feels as he utters those words, as he feels his open wounds continue to get ripped even further. He, yet he still says about the people who made him feel what he's feeling, forgive them. Now when Jesus says this word, he's in rough shape already. He's barely alive. He's been mocked. He's been chained, punched, whipped, spit on, skin ripped, wounded, hair ripped out. It's as though for the religious leaders as they are experiencing this and for the Roman guards, it's all sport for them. They drove a crown of thorns into his head and mocked him with a robe on his bloodied back. With the blood soaking through and, and, and the stains coming through the robe as he was paraded through the crowds. Nothing like the crowds were only a few days earlier. Hebrews says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, the author of Hebrews would say, for all of this, this is actually why Jesus came. He came in order to experience the mocking, in order to experience the blood and the pain, in order to experience the tears for us as an act of service to make atonement. It's why when Jesus says, the words, Father, forgive them, that they are so profound because it summarizes so succinctly his mission. His mission for them, those who are crucifying them, is the same mission it is for us. He died for them just as much as he died for us. To give mercy and love that we don't deserve. To offer forgiveness that has no strings attached. Now Luke continues to record what happens when one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now you have to wonder what went through the minds of the men who were on the crosses next to Jesus. Because one, there was everybody who watched Jesus be crucified who were at the feet. But what about the men who were to the right and left of Jesus? both there experiencing it all, having the closest glimpse of the kind of pain that Jesus was experiencing, both no doubt have heard of Jesus before this moment. This wasn't the first time they heard the name Jesus. Maybe they were curious about his alleged miracles. Or maybe they doubted that this is, this is all too good to be true, that he couldn't do the kinds of things he claimed to do. Maybe they were skeptical of the movement and fanfare that grew and surrounded him. Matthew gives us a little insight into their feelings when he says the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. 
In other words, at least at the beginning, these two robbers felt the same way that everybody else felt who was there that day, who was mocking and laughing. They added to the mocking. They added to the insults. But they're both there, guilty alongside of Jesus and suffering, and then something significant happens. And I wonder if the criminal who asked Jesus to remember him, if, 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 I wonder what went on in his mind when it all shifted. To suddenly have all his pride and arrogance melt away under the weight of his own pain and the imminent death he was now facing. Now it's not unusual when humanity faces death to ask some hard questions. And so maybe for this robber, as he is about to face his own death, he suddenly realizes he needs to ask some different questions about his own fate, about his own humanity, about his own life. I wonder if for him, suddenly he's able to see things more clearly when he looks to the sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. I wonder if he wonders, like, what if it actually is all true? Now, the first criminal does what he had all, he always been doing this whole time, and he continues the mockery. He says, if you really are God, then why are you on the cross? The problem is he fails to realize that Jesus chose to be there. He didn't have to stay. But in choosing to continue to suffer, he would be victorious in saving humanity. The second criminal, though, is seeing things more clearly than he ever has. He's seen his own punishment in light of the death of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't deserve the cross. That Jesus doesn't deserve death. He doesn't deserve punishment. He is a righteous man dying a criminal's death. And what's so amazing is that the criminal's request to remember me isn't met with a list of things that he has to do in the last moments. He's not given a prayer he has to say, changes he has to make. He's all out of time for any changes he could possibly make. But even in the midst of that, he is simply given a promise from Jesus. Today you will be with me. And imagine what it's like to hear Jesus make that promise to you and then to watch him die keeping that promise. He hears this promise, a promise that doesn't get revoked because he really is bad enough to be on a cross. That doesn't get revoked because he waited until the last minute. A promise that Jesus sees it's worth dying even if it's just for him. For Jesus, it's worth his own life. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, it records some words that Jesus says as he quotes the psalmist, David, in Matthew 27, verse 45, it says this, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in this moment where Jesus is experiencing the weight of sin, experiencing the weight of darkness, not only the weight of his own physical pain, but the pain experiencing the weight of the sins of the entire world. Now what's interesting to me is when Jesus says these words, like many of the words, is they're not words that he just came up with. He's quoting scripture. 
Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 when he says these words. David wrote these words in this psalm which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. If you've felt the sense ever of crying out to God and not hearing an answer... That's what Jesus is feeling in that moment. If you've ever felt the experience of being unable to find rest because the pain of life won't let you slow down. That's what Jesus is speaking into as he cries out in this moment. Jesus experiences that himself. The cry of Jesus meets us in our own pain. Because it's in being forsaken and feeling alone that Jesus makes a commitment to you that you will never be left alone. Now David doesn't only say those words. The psalm continues with words of hope. Words that Jesus certainly held on to when he experienced what seemed like the betrayal of his father. Psalm 22, 3 says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. In other words, at the same moment where Jesus cries out and feels like he's all alone, in the moment where he cries out and feels defeated, Jesus also holds in his mind the words his ancestors held on to when they felt alone. The promise that even when it felt like God is not there, he's listening. The promise that even when it feels like you are in exile, that God walks with you. Even when it feels like you've been forgotten, that God always wins. No matter how alone you feel in this moment. The promise of Jesus on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that you will never be left forsaken. That there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. No matter the amount of hurt and pain and sin that you have experienced. Jesus has you in mind on the cross when he says, it's finished. Jesus will never leave you alone. And Jesus knows the heartbreak of an unanswered prayer. He knows the pain of betrayal and loss. Now it's interesting, David jumps back into the language of despair, almost as a sense to paint this picture of you can just go back and forth to feel alone and then be reminded of the hope and then continue to feel despair, all in just a jumbling of feelings and emotions. And David says, but I'm a worm and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now there's an incredible picture here in the language that David uses. David is using language that does two incredible things. One, David certainly has in his mind the exile of the Israelites. The story of his people when they wandered in the wilderness feeling forgotten and abandoned by God. The Israelites who would have certainly cried out things like, My God, my God, where are you? Why aren't you listening to us? Why don't you do something? 
David's probably speaking to his own experiences. His moments in his own life where he feels alone because of his own sin and shame. Feeling like, God, where are you? And in an incredibly powerful way, which we're not even sure how much David realized, these words are also prophetic because they could be the same words that are uttered by Jesus describing the scene that we actually see take place. Jesus is the one who is mocked. Jesus is the one who's being insulted with people shaking their heads. They even say about Jesus, like he trusts in the Lord. If he really is God, why can't he just save himself? Jesus is the mocked one, the insulted one. They tell him to come down from the cross. See, Jesus cries out for the moments that you're crying out. Jesus suffers for the moments you are in suffering. Jesus experiences loneliness and despair for the moments when you feel like there's no reason to continue. And Jesus does this not to give up. Not because they've won, but because he has. He does it not in order to let death win, but but he wants to ensure that death never gets the last word. To make sure that your sin never gets the last word. And to make sure that the sins that have been done to you never get the last word. See, Jesus could have changed what was happening on the cross. He could have come down, but he doesn't. He gives himself willingly. And he does it because in the moments when you cry out, my God, where are you? He knew that rescuing from pain and sin and hurt is worth the cross. He knows the freedom from sin is worth the suffering. He knows the healing and redemption of your story is worth the cross. And so maybe you're asking that kind of question, God, where are you? And perhaps the best answer to the question of God, where are you, is knowing where he was. That on Friday he was on a cross. Because the cross is a reminder how much God hates sin. How much he's willing to fight against it. How much he's willing to do in order to abolish it. He hates the depression and the fear that you experience so much that he's willing to give his life to heal you from it. He hates the sins that have been done to you. The suffering you experience at the hands of other people. The evil that exists in our world. And he hates it so much he's willing to die to fight back against it. And maybe that's difficult, that God's response to suffering is by suffering. Perhaps it doesn't seem like much of an answer to the question of God, where are you? But I would suggest it's the best of all the possibilities. I mean, there are alternatives. Everything happens for a reason. The problem is, is that doesn't usually help much. Or it's just the survival of the fittest. This is just kind of the way the world works and the strong survive, which isn't a very hopeful explanation of things, or maybe karma, or what goes around comes around, you name it. The explanations don't help in the moments when we feel alone. And perhaps the one thing that helps in the loneliness of our own sin and despair is the God who promises to never leave us alone. The God who knows what it's like. And who decides to die, not dying for a version of you that suddenly feels all better. 
He doesn't die for a future version of you who's got your life together, who stops sinning and suddenly is more faithful. He dies for you right now. That in that moment, he accomplished the gift of forgiveness for you. Romans 5, 8 describes this by saying, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the prophet Isaiah actually wrote about this 700 years prior to the event actually even happening. In Isaiah chapter 53, he wrote these words about Jesus, which are so clearly about Jesus that often even today we refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. When he, and he writes this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Your rescue from sin wasn't free. It cost Jesus everything. And Isaiah so perfectly describes the moment that it's hard to believe they could come before the moment. He says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The punishment that Jesus experiences gives you healing. The wounds that Jesus has in his body offer you healing. Jesus' death finished the work. And it's because of that that Jesus can utter the words, it is finished. Because in the, this moment, Jesus declares that the work is done. The cost of sin, which is death, in this moment is paid fully and completely. There's no amount of striving and effort that is needed to pay the price because it's paid already in full. An offer of love that is impossible to comprehend. And so Jesus dies. Not because his life was taken, but in order to pay the price. To make an offering. A love that we can hardly experience. A love that's willing to lay it all down. And Jesus could have come down from that cross. But our sins made it worth it. Our suffering made it worth it. Our loneliness made it worth it. And so Jesus continues to suffer and die because he knows what he's doing. Jesus knows he's the son of God. He knows he is the Messiah, the one that the scriptures promise. He knows that what he can do, no one else can. He knows that his obedience fulfills the promises. It's Jesus' thoughts on the cross that then make us who we are. Because Jesus knows who he is, we can become who Jesus says we are. It really and truly is finished. Jesus, we thank you that you give your life to us. We thank you for the promise of the cross. That while we were still sinners, that you died for us. We thank you for the promise that the cross offers to us. 
that by your own suffering you offer to us peace, that by your own wounds that we are healed. Jesus, help us to cling to that hope, to know that in your death there is victory. Help us to find the hope and forgiveness that comes by your blood. 